Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover though, whether right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forests and cabins in the wood, to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an ode to its far-reaching influence in society. While many of us stood around and debate the correct pronunciation of the word, its actual origin ain't so clear. Unfortunately, the origin of the word remains a mystery at best to this day. The most well-researched writing on the subject that I could find came from David Walls, who wrote on the naming of Appalachia in an Appalachian Symposium back in 1977. Mr. Walls researched the legend surrounding the naming and discovery of the Appalachians and to attempt to uncover the truth about the history. He found that it was Hernando de Soto who first learned of Appalachia and blazed a trail into America to claim and find it for Spain. Generally, the story follows that the root word itself came from a Native American word that holds some type of directional, geographical, or maybe a tribal meaning. Mr. Walls found no correlation between DeSoto and the first mention of the word Appalachia in any related documents. He did, however, discover that the first mention of the word related to Appalachia occurred in 1528 during the expedition of Panfilo de Narvaez. Upon reaching Florida, where present Tampa Bay is, Narvaez and his men inquired with the local inhabitants as to where the gold and riches were located. And probably just to get rid of the Spaniards, the natives told them of a place far to the north that possessed great riches. Now, riches to those Native Americans who had no use for gold or anything of such could very well have meant that the mountains were rich with game and fresh water. Those were riches to them. The name of this location was Appalachian, though we don't know if that word originated from a Native American language or if it was an inaccurate Spanish pronunciation of a similar word. It took almost 30 years for the word Appalachian or some derivative of it to be recorded on a map. Appalachian slowly evolved from being somewhere inside the mountains above Florida to actually being the entire mountainous region that runs parallel to the east coast along the eastern United States. The name stuck in Appalachia, but came the Appalachia we know today. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states to Louisiana. The inhabitants of those mountains, though through the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable. History, as we are now learning every day, is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale has now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or 
people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in those mountains, know that nothing, in fact, could be more wrong. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We will look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them, even to this day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, sponsored by Anchor.fm. Listen, my good friends, as I tell you the true tale of a disaster that befell a small town near my old home in the Appalachian Mountains of southwest Virginia. There, tucked away in the Holston River Valley in the heart of southwest Virginia, is Saltville. It's little more than a dot on the map. Why else would you give a town that name except for the fact that this particular area in the valley has historically been rich in salt deposits? The salt in this valley attracted prehistoric animals to its environment like mastodons, saber-toothed tigers, and giant sloths. Many other fossils are still found to this day. Native Americans resided in the valley, and it's told by the Cherokee that they even had contact with Spanish conquistadors in the 15th century. Beginning in the late colonial period, settlers of this area began commercially producing salt. The Preston and Palmer families produced so much salt in the valley and distributed it so thoroughly throughout the southern United States that the town became known as the salt capital of the Confederacy during the Civil War, and every state in the Confederacy had its own salt furnace in that town. After the war and with Reconstruction, Saltville grew into a typical Appalachian company town where the residents were pretty much owned and operated by the town's business. You've heard the song, you load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. This is what he's talking about when Tennessee Ernie Ford sang about owing his soul to the company store. The mineral deposits in the Saltville Valley were irresistible to the young Thomas Mathiason, a British engineer who established the Mathiason Alkali Works along the North Fork of the Holston River in 1894. The new industry cranked out soda ash, which is also known as sodium carbonate, which was used in the glass, paper, and textile industries. By 1896, Mathiason produced the first commercially available bleaching powder, which became its main product. Mathiason manufactured other products throughout the next 60 years, such as liquid chlorine, pesticides, fertilizers, and even dry ice. Then in 1954, Mathias and Alkali Works merged with Olin Industries, a group of businesses that produced blasting powder, ammunition, and guns. This new business became known as Olin Mathias Chemical Company. Olin Mathias lived on for another 22 years until 1972 when new EPA regulations forced them to shut down due to their chronic pollution. Mathias and Alkali Works and then later Olin served such a dominant role in the life of the 
Saltville that it permanently etched its memory on the face of time. One only has to mention the words Mathiasen or Olin in any combination to invoke a reaction from the residents to this day. Trust me on that one. I've been there many times. This due to a horrific memory of the town's residents that they harbor about the country still today. That being the Muck Dam Collapse of 1924. Operations had changed at the Mathias and Saltville plant by 1908. More chemically complex products were being created, so more chemically complex waste followed, which flowed from the factory in greater amounts. Jim Brown, a former manager of the environmental technology for Olin Corporation, explained that Mathiasen's manufacturing of alkaline products resulted in slaker waste, fly ash, and cinders from the steam boilers at the plant. The company's solution to the, its chemical waste problem was to pump it into a dam along the banks of the Holston River. Mined limestone that had been burned, made into lime, and slaked to make hydrated lime was the starting raw material for the process that resulted in soda ash. The mixture inside the muck dam was distilled ammonia waste, a slurry made of solid particles and liquid that was pumped out to the pond. The solids settled out and the liquid, which was mainly water then, was drained into the river, a process for which the plant had a permit. By 1924, the waste pond spanned 30 acres along the river, its walls being nothing more than the dried contents of the dam, which rose at least 100 feet in height. An unfortunate community of plant workers lived just below the dam in a neighborhood known as Palmertown. The 1924 Christmas season had come upon the residents of this small town in southwest Virginia, and though you'll hear people say that Christmas today just ain't what it used to be, I'll tell you that Christmas has always been what it is today. It's the times that change, and with those changes come new generations and slightly different traditions. Christmas was the first holiday that was official in this country, and Though it was set aside to observe the birth of Jesus Christ, there was also an alternative motive for it. That motive was to spurn the growth of capitalism in this country, and as we can see today, it was a resounding success. The Christmas Eve of 1924 was cold and rainy in Saltville, but its residents enjoyed it anyway, cooking and last-minute shopping, among other things, preparing for the big day. About 20 children attended a party at the Fuel House. Mr. Cal Fuel was the Saltville undertaker and hosted his party every year. J.C. Scott came in from, for the holiday from Roanoke and stayed with his brother, J.H. Scott. The McCready's, another family, all were home and the children in bed with George and his wife decorating the tree and waiting for Santa. Hiawatha and Leota Prater chose to stay home instead of going to the movie, as Leota was too tired from cooking all day with her mother. 
All was well until the clock struck 8 p.m. on the cold and dreary Christmas Eve night, when without warning the huge muck dam above Palmer Town exploded open and spewed a violent storm of alkali sludge all over the poor people living below, ending their silent night. The dam break was so great that boulders weighing up to 20 tons were thrown 750 feet across the river. The sludge wave that hit Palmer Town was estimated to be 100 feet high and 300 feet across. The wave of muck even swept a quarter of a mile back up the river and destroyed houses along the way as it literally reversed the flow of the river for a short time. Tons of muck literally covered the Holston River Valley that night and swept away houses, barns, animals, trees, and residents, all in a matter of seconds. A 14-year-old Frank Sanders remembered that he was out with his girlfriend in a Model T Ford near Lever's Leap when they came upon a cross burning by the Ku Klux Klan. Not wasting any time, he directed the Model T back to town to visit Roger's confectionery for a Coke. Don't blame him there because those idiots are dangerous. When Frank and his girlfriend arrived, they witnessed a panicked crowd of people and assumed that the cross-burning incited the commotion. Before he could ask, a bystander told the couple that the muck dam had broken. Frank's little brother James had attended the fuel's party at Palmer Town. D.S. Musselwhite and a group of other men congregated at G.L. Smith's store in the nearby community of Henrytown to listen to the radio broadcast that that evening and he says I was with a lot of other men and boys who were gathered at G.L. Smith's store after supper listening to his new radio we could distinctly hear the strokes of the town clock at some broadcasting station and it struck one two three four five six seven eight several of the fellers looked at their watches and it was exactly eight o'clock by my watch when came the Lord's Prayer, solemn and impressive. It was not halfway finished when the door suddenly flew open and a woman gasping for breath from running rushed in and exclaimed, My goodness, man, run quick. The muck dam is broken and we'll all be washed away. It was Mrs. Landon Smith who will be long remembered by the people of Henrytown as their Paul Revere. She had run from her home up the river to warn the people below. Warden Poor, then 24, worked that evening delivering goods from the Mathiasen General Store to families in town. Mr. Poor received word of the muck dam collapse from the ho a house he was delivering to. He drove straight to Palmertown to help. Herman Cannon was 14 at the time and upstream from Palmertown. He recounted hearing an explosion at about 8 p.m. and thought someone setting off dynamite to celebrate Christmas. Ed Smith, who lived in Palmer Town, was also out delivering goods for the general store. A house in Palmer Town was his next delivery list on his list. Ellen Smith and her sister Maxie heard something similar to a plane and a big thunderstorm as they walked up the mountain from Henrytown around 8 p.m. They reportedly heard screaming and crying and people yelling. Leota Prater's mother and sister-in-law arrived at the house a 
day earlier than they had planned. Their husband, Hiawatha, got home from work just shortly thereafter. None of the three of them had even time to remove their coats when it hit. 13-year-old Juanita Prater McKenna, Hiawatha's younger sister, took in a Western movie at the theater in town with her mother and younger brother. Her father had to work at the plant that night. Juanita's brother-in-law reached the crowded movie theater in the middle of the show with the news that the muck dam had broke. The roaring explosion drew the Palmertown residents to their front door at about the time the wall of muck slammed into their houses. J.H. Scott initially dismissed the roar as noise coming from the plant, but he and his brother J.C. felt compelled enough to open the door and look outside. J.H. Scott reported that they saw dimly outlined against the sky great mountains as it went moving by the house. The muck then slammed into the house with such force that it threw J.H. out through the back wall of the house and into the backyard about 50 feet from where he stood at the front door. J.H. got up immediately went back into the house to check on his brother. He found J.C. partly covered with muck and what would be a fatal wound on his head. Juanita Prater McKenna said that her brother's family hadn't pulled her their coats off when it happened. My brother and his family were the last ones they found. It was a month to the day later. They had just washed right around the side of the house. Hiawatha and Leota were discovered and on January 24th because the red dye of Leota's coat began leaching to the surface of the muck. Some folks said that the muck would eat you. She said of her brother and sister-in-law's discovery, though, they wasn't disfigured at all. Hiawatha and Juanita's brother, Rob, recollected that after walking through the muck all night searching for his missing son, their father was never again the same. Everybody told us my daddy walked all over all night calling for Hiawatha, recalled Mrs. McKenna. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. As soon as the muck settled, as many as 150 rescuers dashed to Palmer Town and began searching for bodies. People were found trapped in upper stories of their homes or clinging to rocks and trees after having been swept away downriver. Fires were lit from any nearby flammable material to aid in the rescue. The injured were taken to a makeshift hospital in the rooms above the Matthias and General store and the dead were taken to the undertaker. Warden Poor, one of the most recognized rescues, rescuers, wasted no time in wading through the muck. Mr. Poor later said, You couldn't see a thing but a big white cloud in the dark. Old people were hollering and I was in muck up to my neck. It ate holes in me, my legs, my chest. It had so much lime in it. Mr. Poor reported that the rescuers tied ropes around each other and to the houses they passed. When a person was found alive and pulled out of the muck, they would hit the ground and run like something wild after we got them out. Carl Eskridge published a pamphlet about the dam collapse shortly after the accident, and in his account he tells the heartbreaking story of the rescue of the two Prater girls. 
Fronia in Virginia. Mr. Wyndham Roberts, one of the searchers, tells his pathetic story of how he and two other men, John Helton and Dave Hicks, while passing some wreckage, heard a child calling for its mother. On examination, the voice was found to be coming from under the roof of a building that was washed away, but the rafters were still held intact. Quickly, a board was knocked from the roof by the men and a little hand thrust through the hole, and the little girl pleaded, please don't kill us, my sister's in bed here with me. Mama and Papa are downstairs, and we've been calling for them all night, but they won't answer us. They were assured by the men that they wouldn't harm them, and they'd come to rescue them. The children didn't understand what had happened. They had been put to bed upstairs, and they had some of the Christmas toys with them. When found, the bed they were resting in was resting on top of the muck and was pressed against a rafter in the roof. The remainder of their home was gone, and with it their mother, father, and other sister. This incident so touched the hearts of the men that they wept like children. Though some survived the, didn't survive the ordeal, Mr. Robert Fuller, his wife, their eight-month-old baby, and his brother and sister-in-law, Arthur and Gladys Pauly, were at home when the buck crashed into their house. Fortunately, a 16-foot piece of timber floated in the house, and they all climbed on it, floating out the doorway into the darkness. At some point downstream, Mr. Fuller, or Mrs. Fuller, I should say, grabbed an overhang tree limb with the baby in her arms and made her way out of the muck. Robert then jumped off while 15-year-old Gladys fell off and swallowed some muck in the process. Robert carried Gladys to shore and as he could touch the ground through the muck and was able to walk, all members of the family were safely rescued when their cries for help were heard. The sun rose on Christmas morning to a cataclysmic scene. The once quaint little community of company houses now lay splittered in a thick, viscous layer of caustic muck. Rescuers continued to crawl and trudge through the muck until the late afternoon. It was an awful, gruesome scene to deal with, especially on Christmas morning. The entire landscape was covered with a coat of muck that ironically gave an appearance of much like a holiday snowfall. Houses stood halfway up and covered up halfway up with the alkali, and debris strode the surface while drowned chickens, pigs, calves, and other domestic animals were laying in every part of what was once an apple orchard. Nothing remained except a few trees that were whitewashed by the flying muck spray up to the topmost branches. Others had been seen further down stream in the bottom dragged out by the roots. Once the muck and debris were removed from the pulverized neighborhood, Matthiasen leveled out the affected area and rebuilt the homes for those who lost their homes. This new neighborhood became known as Perryville and is still there today. While the Matthiasen Alkaline Works was directly, completely, and undeniably responsible for the entire catastrophe, 
At the time, the residents in the town praised the company for its efforts in aiding and assisting those in need. They set up an emergency hospital, brought in doctors from as far away as Bristol, and found homes for those who lost everything. They also replaced lost furniture, personal possessions, and livestock, which was the least they could do. Matthiasen quickly worked to reroute his waste pond and to a nearby sinkhole and to more permanent dam be constructed. The plant also rewarded the rescuers for the bodies found at $25 a body. An emergency fund was created by Mr. Robert Porterfield that consisted of around $5,000, half of which came from Mr. Matthiasen. That's about $77,000 in today's money. The governor of Virginia communicated to the town in a telegram on December 26. that read, Accept my deepest regrets at the sad catastrophe in your plant. Please convey to the stricken families my sincere sympathy to their in their hour of sorrow. Mayor M.S. Dunham also reached out to the town on December 31st with the following statement. As mayor of the town of Saltville, I wish to take the opportunity at this time to thank the people of Saltville and their work both rescuing the people of the recent disaster and for their help in aiding the injured and the homeless. If proper information can be secured as to who did the heroic rescue work, I will see that they get proper recognition. And all 19 people died on that fateful Christmas Eve night as counted by Mayor Dunham and just as many suffered injuries. The mayor himself cried as the bodies were brought to the undertaker on the first night. The cause of the dam collapse has never been quite determined, though it likely resulted from a failure in the structural integrity of the dam wall. After all, it was nothing but dirt and it had been raining. The rain decreased the dam's rigidity and, in fact, one man was even arrested under suspicion for the wall collapse. Roy Patrick was detained and held without bond under the charge of using dynamite to rupture the dam in retaliation for Matthiasen refusing to hire him. Roy refuted his charges, saying that the people who have it in for him were behind the whole scheme. A grand jury decided not enough evidence existed to convict Mr. Patrick for the crime, so the charges were dropped. Catastrophic events often bring people and communities together in ways that they don't normally intersect, and it often happens in cases when nearly everyone is touched by the tragedy. Saltville is no exception to that rule. The people affected by the dam collapse continued on with their lives as well as they could as tough Appalachians always do. Many of the heroes of that night refused to see themselves as such, asserting that they only did what was right, another admirable trait of the Appalachian. It was well into the afternoon before many of the men returned to their families. Mary Virginia Smith remembered her father going out on Christmas Eve and assisting in the rescue efforts. He finally returned on Christmas afternoon, so covered in muck that it looked like it had been plastered to him. Miss Smith recalled that her father quietly washed his hands and warmed them over the stove. And when her mother entered the room, he said to her, Mary, they're toys and 
a little Christmas tree was floating down the river and the little children were gone. Then he cried. Christmas of 1924 just failed to exist for this little town. The devastation and loss of life overwhelmed everything on that day. But the memory of this tragedy didn't die with those who survived that night. The Muck Dam collapse survives in the collective memory of Saltville and in the history books as another environmental disaster unleashed on another Appalachian Company town. Today you can visit Saltville and see just how small and tight-knit the community is. It's a beautiful place tucked away in the Blue Ridge Mountain Range of the Appalachians in southwest Virginia. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder, mystery, or legend. I'm Larry Bentley and I'll see you then.